Welcome to the W2 Prison Break Show, a podcast and YouTube series hosted by real estate investor, author, and coach Brian O'Neill. Tune in each week as we interview business owners who have successfully planned and executed their W2 Prison Break. You'll hear their stories, learn about their challenges, and what ultimately pushed them over the edge and gave them the courage to break free. Most importantly, you'll discover they are not much different than you. Listen in each week as we give you useful insights and action items to start your W-2 prison break and get you on the path you were always meant to be on. Hey there, welcome back to another episode of the W-2 Prison Break Show. I want to just take a minute here and thank you for tuning in every single week and supporting the show and our mission to educate and inspire 1 million people to quit their W-2 jobs and start the business of their dreams by the end of 2026. It's a huge ask. It's a huge mission. Can't do it alone. I need your help. So I do appreciate your support in the show. Please do leave us a rating and review. It really does help get to that mission, which I cannot do alone. And share it. Share the show with someone who might be in the predicament where they're in a job that they just, they're not happy with, or they're not in a good place in life and they don't know where to get started. That's what this show and W2 Prison Break is all about. Today, I brought on a a great guest. We talk a lot about real estate investing on this show. Her name is Whitney Elkins Hutton, and she is a multifamily investor, believes in passive investing, and she's actually going to talk today about how you can truly invest passively like not trading your time for dollars. And we're going to talk about some really cool stuff today. You're going to hear about how car washes are a pretty awesome opportunity. She's going to give her take on the real estate market. And she's going to talk about the seven pillars of wealth building where you can invest in any market. And as long as you follow those principles and not lose money. So I don't want to give the show away without further ado. Here we go. Whitney, welcome to the show. So glad to have you on today. Look forward to speaking with you. Oh, thank you so much for having me on. This is going to be fun. Yeah, I agree. I agree. We're going to help a bunch of people. And you are in the real estate world, which is, you know, I'm in the real estate world as well. We talk a lot about real estate on this show. I was doing some research on you and I read a very interesting story on your LinkedIn profile about your first real estate deal that you did way back when that was very successful. But then the second one, maybe not so successful. And I was like, man, I really want to hear about that story. So maybe if you could kind of take us back to how you got started in real estate in those first two deals and how it led to where you are now. Well, I'll start with where I am at now only because I don't know how much time you have for the other, other story. Yeah. But my name is Whitney. I'm the director of investor education here at PassiveInvesting.com. And so where I'm at now is I get to work with investors and help them understand private equity investing, how to invest truly passively where they don't have to operate a deal, but they can invest in large institutional grade assets for cash flow, equity, and tax benefits, and, and as well as diversification and a myriad of other things. We do multifamily self-storage, car washes, hotels, and also first position real estate debt. But I didn't start off with a real estate degree. I didn't start off like where I'm at today, like, you know, working for a large firm with an extensive portfolio of thousands and thousands of units, you know, and 1.3 billion assets under management. I started off as a single family investor in 2002. And 
completely by accident. I had a house with a significant other and the relationship fell apart and everything was under my name, the loan, the utilities, everything. And as a young 20 something, I kind of was a little scared of what to do. It was a huge growing up moment for me. So I stuffed the house full of roommates, you know, who didn't mind living in a construction zone, completed the rehab. I mean, everything needed to be redone on this property. I mean, there were psychedelic daisies painted on the walls, shag green carpet. Um, with beautiful hardwood floors underneath, but I had no idea how to refinish them. So paid a lot of friends in beer, pizza, sushi, you know, over the next 11 months, got this property put back together and probably committed my number one real estate investing mistake, which is I sold the property. It was right next to a college campus. I could have just moved on, traded up for the next property and, you know, started my rental career, but didn't do that. I thought it was the hottest thing since sliced bread and bought a mountain home violated every law of real estate, number one law, location, location, location. And I bought a a mountain community on the side of a mountain (laughs) with 19 steps from the driveway to the front porch and couldn't sell the property when I needed to exit, like right before the 2008 crisis. And the mountain community started to soften a couple of years before that 2008 crisis. I was in a horrible loan. I was like, just please like, not let this property sink me. And probably what you're referring to is it took me a year to get the property under contract. I actually had an offer two days after putting it on the market. And I was like, no way am I going to take that low ball offer. Look at what I did on my last property. Like, Certainly I can do better. A year later, took the same offer <laughs> just from a different person and uh, probably a more poorly structured deal. We ended up having to dig out a retaining wall on the backside of the property and get that replaced during the due diligence phase. And fortunately, all I did was bring money to the table. My realtor and the buyer orchestrated all of the repairs. He got it all locked up. They were locked in. A $6,000 retaining wall ended up costing $30,000 by the time they settled on materials and all this. And the whole entire time, I said, guys, my neighbor who lives uphill from me, I'm like, she has a, t- a tenant living in a school bus that sits on the retaining wall. Just tell her to move the bus. And they had to, to repair the wall. They moved the bus to my neighbor's property and his wall failed. And I was like, guys, this is a bus. It doesn't matter. You move the bus into place. You put the weight, like, no, this wall is supposed to be bomb proof, everything. We closed the deal and less than 24 hours later, I get a call from my realtor and you can hear a lot of screaming, you know, put down your weapons, you know, that type of yelling going on. And the bus had fallen into the roof of the house. The tenant moved the bus back into position behind the property. It fell into the roof of the house with the guy in the property (laughs) or in the bus. And, you know, the police are trying to, you know, extract him from the bus. And he's like, don't come near me, you know, pumping his shotguns. And I was like, am I on the hook for this? He was like, no, that ship won't sail. Like, I just thought you would want to know that you're right. It was the bus. I'm like, okay, please don't call me again. Wow. Well, if you're in real estate long enough, you're going to have a crazy story or two like that. We can go on for hours, but I would say I've had way more deals work out very well than I do crazy stories. Yeah. And that's the way it's supposed to go if you stick with it and you don't. I mean, you could have cashed in at that point, but you chose not to. And now, as you mentioned, you're. I love what you said about, I want to talk to you about passive investing because that word is thrown around all the time, passive. And you said something, I think you might've said truly passive 
because passive activity is, I mean, it means you do nothing, essentially. You always have to put some effort in, right? But what you're talking about is a minimal amount of effort up front, and then you're getting the return, all these benefits attached. So could you expand on what you said initially when you said what you do now? Because a lot of the listeners are going to be super interested in that because they're working busy corporate W-2 jobs, and they want to look for other ways to make money without trading their time for dollars. Absolutely. Well, so, you know, passive income, it's a sliding scale like anything else. Even in the W-2 world, there's a sliding scale. You can trade your time for $10 or $100 an hour, or you can trade your time for commissions and bonuses and even make more money. It's no different in quote unquote passive real estate. And I need to break this up. There's passive in terms of your time and then passive in terms of what the IRS sees. So the IRS deems passive investing is you buy a property once, you put a tenant in it, and you no longer have, you're leveraged in your time, right? The money that's coming in is quote unquote passive. You're not trading your time to bring that money in. But as anybody who's ever owned a single family residence you know, and rented out their property, you're doing a lot. You got to find the property, you got to secure the loan, you got to manage the property, you got to tenant the property. Maybe you get property management to help you out with all this, get to leverage yourself a little bit more, but you're still handling all the day-to-day decisions. Why? Because you're the operator of the property. You're the CEO and the operator of that property. Now, when we talk about passive investing, like what we do here in private equity, you as an investor, you are truly sitting in the CEO position. You're going to research who the operator is, the markets they invest in, and you're going to research the deal. And then you're going to hire an operator to run that deal on your behalf. You trade out the leverage. You get to leverage somebody else's knowledge and expertise on maybe you don't know how to run a 252-unit asset. Great. You can invest in something that's larger and more institutional grade, has scalability, you know, is value different and has the propensity to make larger returns than single family property. You get to leverage their team. You get to leverage their ability to secure credit and lending. And more importantly, not have that loan under your name. So you're not taking on that risk. You are offered protections by being a limited partner position. So you're not signing on the loan. So your risk is limited at the LLC level, truly limited at the LLC level. And we can go into more on that you know, here in a little bit, but more importantly, you get your time back. So when you invest in a large private equity deal, such as what we do, you're going to get to know, love and trust us. You're going to understand the markets we're investing in our deals. And once you write a check into one of our deals, you're technically done. Okay. You have no more operational day-to-day control. That's why those first three pieces, betting the operator, the market deal are so important. But what you get back is your number one non-renewable resource, which is your time, okay? Because once you spend it, it's gone. You can't get it back. You can always get more money, right? But once you spend your time, it's gone. Now, here's the thing. Now, I know a lot of people that I talk to, I work with investors, I coach investors, and they're like, that's a huge leap for me working my day job to investing in passive real estate. Like, don't I need to earn my stripes? No. Like if you have a higher and better use in your job, say like you're a high income earner, like doctor, lawyer, engineer, tech worker, behoove you just to jump into private real estate. You know, there's no degree path here. You don't have to earn your stripes. But maybe there's a, you know, somebody here listening that is like, I don't have $25,000, dollars $100,000 to invest in an asset. I want to get to that point. 
you know, there's nothing wrong getting into controlled real estate, single family, small multifamily investing. For some people like me, I had to do that. I had to scale a portfolio of over 30 single family homes before I actually had the income and the equity to be able to write these larger checks. The path isn't the same for everybody. 100%. You know, that's one of the things that's great about real estate is there are so many options to make money, right? You just have to figure out what's best for you at this particular stage in your life. And I think a lot of people overlook this. They overlook the fact that, you know, especially if they're a homeowner, they're overlooking their primary residence as a way to get started. That's what you did. You were kind of forced into the situation, but you took advantage of it versus just ridding your spot. Well, you did sell it, but you could have done some other stuff with that. And that really launched your career. I'm super interested in hearing about the car washes because I keep hearing this. And I guess for lack of a better phrase, it's not maybe the most exciting business, but I keep hearing that it's super, super lucrative or it can be. So maybe if you could expand on the benefits of car washes and why you're investing in them. Well, I just want to comment on what you said that it doesn't seem to be super sexy or enticing. Investing isn't meant to be that. Like if you want excitement, like set aside a small part of money and go to Vegas or, you know, hike a 14 or like get your excitement some other way. Your investments, they should be boring, right? Like they should be consistent and boring. They should abide by the seven pillars of wealth building and just work like clockwork for you. Now, as far as car washes, First of all, we'll pick apart really quickly how there's different types of car washes, but you need to understand that you're buying a business that has, if you buy it right, most people don't, this is the key. They're buying the business and thinking they got the business in the land. And oftentimes they don't get the land. Okay. So you need to buy the business and the land. Why do you want that? Because if you can't control the land, you got a landlord literally that can sell the land right out from underneath you, increase your rents, you now are no longer in control of your profit and loss statement. So it's super important to buy right. Now for us, there's multiple types of car washes. We focus on express car washes. And I'll tell you why, because all of us know about those in the DIY car washes. You drive your car in a bay, you drop some quarters in, you got the spray hose and the scrub brush, and you pray your 10-year-old doesn't spray you down with the hose, like mine does to me. We have a car that we have to take through one of those bays because it doesn't fit into anything else. We have a camper van. So I still have to frequent one of those, but it's not scalable. You only have 10 bays. You can only get 10 people through maybe max an hour. Mm -hmm. So you can only make so much money there. Now there's other perks to that as well. And we can go into that, but then you have your in-bay automatics. So those are the ones that are attached to gas service stations, like a little mini conveyor belt, you can maybe get two or three cars through pretty quickly. But you know, if you're the fourth or fifth car in line, good luck, you're going to go do something else. Then you have the full service car wash, which is on the other end. That's where you have maybe like a 20 or 30 foot long tunnel and you drive a car through and you got an army of people vacuuming the cars and an army of people drying the cars. Those are very labor intensive. Then you got this sweet spot in the middle, the express tunnel car washes, where you can crank through four or 500 cars an hour and operate it with two or three people, full-time employees. And so you can modulate you know, the electricity usage, the water usage, the chemical usage, and you can provide quite honestly, more times than not a better product than you could in a DIY situation or in a full service situation. That's really where we focus on the sweet spot. And why is it so profitable is because of volume. 
and we can keep the expenses low on that. So when you talk about when you evaluate a business, it's all about the net operating income or expected gross income, the profit. What can you bring in this profit? So how are the three levers you can make more profit? Increase your income, decrease your expenses. And oh, by the way, you can do both. And that's what express car washes allow us to do. Awesome. Next time I go to a car wash, I'll never look at it the same. I haven't been because I've been hearing all about this. Did you say three to 400 cars per hour? Is that what you said? Um, Four to 500. Four to 500. Okay. That almost seems not believable, but I do believe it. Oh, Um, I'm sorry. Hold on. Time out. Yeah. Rewind. Four to 500 a day. (laughs) A day. Okay. My goodness. I said, I'm going to end this show. You can get through a high number of volume an hour. Yeah. For those people whose jaws were on the floor, like dragging. Okay. We can pick them up a little bit, but yeah, that's still, you know, huge numbers. Like if you have a 10 bay, like in place automatic, you might get 40 or 50 through, you know, you're 10 xing your income. So. I mean, that's still a lot of cars and, you know, everyone's probably paying whatever, five, six, seven, some are paying more per wash. So. I love that. Well, here's the thing is that when you have that type of scale and efficiency, people are more apt to pay in a subscription model, right? Mm. Because they know if they pull in probably any time of day, they will get served within five minutes or less. Okay. You can't guarantee that with the other types of car washes. We have a full service car wash here in town. My husband and I, we have to decide, oh, we're going to wash the car Saturday. Because we might have to pop in line three or four times throughout that day to figure out when is a good time to get in line. Or we're like 20 or 30 cars deep. It's an hour long process, right? But when people can get served fast, they're going to pay good, fast and cheap, right? Like you can get definitely two. That's what people strive for. In this case, you can get all three. They'll pay a subscription model for that. And so that subscription model, we're generally charging $25 to $45 a month, depending on how many bells and whistles somebody wants with their car wash, you know, different types of waxes. Do they want to wash their dog at the same time they wash the car? Like for me, sign me up. I mean, I I have a 60 pound puppy and I'm like, please let me wash her at the same time. But the next question most investors ask is like, well, if I'm paying a subscription model, what prevents me from washing my car every single day? Well, nothing other than time. But most subscribers to a package like this wash their cars 1.8 times a month. Okay. And they're doing this almost 12 months a year. Okay. And the average wash, just the water, the electricity and the chemicals that go into the wash salaries and that like for the full-time employees, but there's a hefty margin there and you can stabilize your income year round. Whereas like, if you have like a DIY car, you know, car wash, a operated one, summer months, spring, summer, and early fall are going to be super busy. Your winter months are going to be not nearly as busy, you know, with yeah. a subscription model, it's kind of operates more like a self storage in a way. Mm, which you do that as well, from what I understand. Do you look to purchase car washes that are already in place or are you building from the ground up? Both. Okay. Yeah. So we're looking to scale a portfolio um, in the next four years. We're already one year in of 250 to 300 locations. And that's going to require us to do it both ways through direct acquisition and then also through development. Now, the acquisitions, who are we acquiring from? Well, we're acquiring from mom and pop operators that are tired. There are a lot of people that got into this business, you know, kind of going, wow, I heard car washes were lucrative. I'm going to do everything I can and I'm going to either develop my own or I'm going to go acquire my own. Guys, it takes about 1.5 million to develop your own minimally. So you got to acquire the land, you got to probably acquire some sort of brand, purchase the equipment. It's a huge upfront cost. 
most people don't have those kind of checks. Now they might realize that they need to scale locations, right? Like, you know, four or maybe five locations, but then they realize there's no property management for this. So what are they now? They're now the operator again. Okay. It's just, instead of having five single family properties, they now have five operating businesses that it's really hard for them to step away. So we're purchasing from these mom and pop operators that are super tired. Now you might be scratching your head going, well, there's no property management and you guys are scaling a portfolio of 250 to 300 locations. Like, how are you solving that problem? Well, we're actually building from the ground floor up the first third party property management company for car washes. And we're going to be focused quarterly on our portfolio. And not only is that going to help us scale, but it's also going to help us with the exits of these portfolios because now, you know, it's more enticing to IPO. It's also more enticing to a REIT or another private equity group because they don't want to manage properties either. They want yeah. to buy an income producing portfolio. So it gives us a lot of flexibility. It's very cool. It's a very cool industry. And it's very new. Think about it. Self-storage, like back in 2006, 7, and 8. We're just on the very beginning of the infancy of what could happen here. It's a $33 billion industry. And there's only about 29,000 car washes throughout the United States. You know, forgive me, my numbers might be off by a couple thousand, but there's a lot of growth here. And now a lot of people might be scratching their head and be like, that's a lot of car washes. If you think about it, there's gas stations, multiple gas stations on a corner. There's multiple car oil change places within a town. And even with the move to electric vehicles, even electric vehicles need to be washed. Totally. I just think that the, with the way the world is now, I mean, I can't remember the last time I physically hand washed my car. Seriously, especially living here in Illinois and Chicago in the winters. I mean, you have to get your car washed multiple times because the weather just destroys it. I live in Colorado. We get mad chloride sprayed on the streets to help yeah. de-ice them. And yeah, you have to get that stuff off your car. It'll just destroy it. Yeah, that was great. You really shared. I think a lot of people are going to be interested in this. I know that I am. And I'm just keeping hearing about it again. It's in its infancy. It sounds like kind of like self-storage was years and years ago. You kind of snuck something in there that I want to go back to before you start talking about car washes. You said the seven pillars of wealth building. We just kind of brushed over it. So I think that would be a huge <laughs> add to the listeners today. If you could expand on that, please. Yeah. So I don't pretend to own the concept, but you know what I've done is kind of packaged it up nicely for people to understand. For anybody who kind of gets down this, you know, financial independence, rabble wolf, you know, seeking financial freedom, trying to leave their W-2 job. Part of the question is, how do I know when I start investing in assets? And we're not talking about underwriting. We're not talking about the spreadsheet part, but like, how do I know which asset class to go into? Like you can go into notes and real estate and stocks, bonds, mutual funds, but like what makes them different? Why do people make money and lose money? You know, in my thousands of books that I've read, people that I've interviewed, I've distilled it down to seven principles. And a lot of these I learned from Warren Buffett, Ray Dalio, like some of the major investors out there is one, you got to invest for capital preservation. I think we're in the market cycle right now. We're recording in January, 2023. We're in a market cycle where capital preservation is utmost importance, right? Mm -hmm. Don't lose money. Okay. Warren Buffett's rule number one, rule number two, see rule number one, right? Quite simply. Yeah. Two, invest for cash flow. 
Now, cash flow in some asset classes are really compressed right now, but there will be multifamily cycles different from self-storage with cycles different from car washes and the like. Making sure the asset has some sort of cash flow now to demonstrate stability and also help cover all the expenses on the asset. Number three, investing for equity growth. Now, if your real estate assets right now are include your primary residence, you're hoping you're in a market where you can get natural equity. But I also look for opportunities that have forced equity where I can manipulate the income and the expenses on the property to create that a larger gap in that net operating income and grow it. Mm-hmm. Why? Because those larger commercial real estate assets, this does not hold true for single family homes or even small one to four units. And I would say even 50 units and below, it's challenging. But when you get 50 units above, your asset is valuated on some sort of multiple or division of that net operating income. Okay, If you're talking commercial real estate, it's net operating income divided by the market cap rate that gives you the value of the asset. If I can grow the net operating income, even if the cap rate gets larger, you know, it gets worse, the market gets worse, the cap rate will get larger. I'm still making money. Okay. I'm still increasing the value. Investor tax benefits. You know, that's why I love real estate. You have tax benefits in business, but I love, love, love real estate. Direct ownership of real estate, private equity real estate is because I can get, take advantage of one of the largest tax shelters out there, which is depreciation, accelerated depreciation. Okay. And right now we still have bonus depreciation, even though it's stepping down. Okay. And Bonus depreciation is more of an incentive than it is an accounting method, but I get to take advantage of that. As I get to take advantage of the 1031 exchange to continue to defer my capital gains tax and my depreciation recapture tax, I get to take advantage of that. So the time value of money in real estate is immense. Mm. Like that's how this asset class, the overarching asset class makes more millionaires than billionaires because they understand these first four core principles, they can make money in almost any market cycle. Now, I said there were seven. The other three are kind of more rules. One, right now in this market, you have to invest in assets with smart leverage. If there's going to be any leverage at all, it has to be used smartly because leverage can help you make money, but it can also help you lose money. You can cut both ways. I am looking for assets with fixed interest rate debt. Now, I know there's a huge argument out there for ARM loans right now. It depends on how long you're going to hold your asset. It depends on what the business plan is on the asset. But I like fixed interest rate at least for five, seven, 10 years, you know, at least get it to the length of the business plan and options to extend it past there. But smart debt, okay? Mm-hmm. This is not the time to monkey around with debt. And then making sure you're investing in assets that provide an inflation hedge. Most assets do not. Real estate does. I can buy it in today's dollars. And as the dollar devalues, I'm paying it back with dollars that have less purchasing power. So I'm reaping the benefit of buying an asset today and preserving it in today's dollars and paying it back with future dollars that are less powerful. I don't see that trend going away. And then the last wealth building is making sure you invest with amazing operators. Okay. Now the operator can be you, which means you need to invest in yourself, your education and become top notch in your class. Really understand what you're doing. Don't get out of the stocks, bonds and mutual fund market only to kind of like pass off the buck on your real estate investing to somebody else, right? Do your own training on you. If you're going to invest in private equity, okay. In these larger deals, like what we do, 
you got to learn how to underwrite the operator. Okay. Because not all operators are created equal. And here's the thing, when people transition out of investing in stocks, bonds, and mutual fund, what are they doing? They're chasing yield. Okay. They've been trained to chase yield. And if you take that same type of mentality into real estate investing, especially in private equity investing, you probably at some point in time are going to get burned. Okay. Wow. That was amazing. Thank you for sharing that. That was very educational. I wrote them all down. That was like an hour and a half talk presentation in like five minutes. There you go. All right. Is that presentation available somewhere yeah. that people can go watch? Yeah, you can find it at PassiveInvesting.com. We are getting those all posted there, but also on our YouTube page. And if people just reach out to me at Whitney at PassiveInvesting.com, I can send them the link. Awesome. And that's where people would go because I was going to ask you, where can folks go to learn more about you and potentially invest in what you're, all these wonderful things you're talking about? There is a special landing page on the PassiveInvesting.com site and it is called PassiveInvestingWithWhitney.com. And you can't get these resources anywhere else, but at that landing page. And there I have a book that walks investors through how to start evaluating private equity real estate and just the seven steps it takes to get invested in their first deal. And a lot of that is front-loaded. You don't have to do the same seven steps all the time. But especially when you're you know, new to the space, you got to understand your goals, your risk tolerance, how to vet operators, markets, and deals. And then we can kind of turn you loose from there. Yeah. It's great that you're educating the investor on how to choose the operator because that's difficult. There's so many of them out there and evaluating, you're really kind of relying on them to present the information to you and trusting the information. And I know they don't guarantee the returns, but the returns that you're looking for, you invest fifty, seventy-five hundred thousand dollars whatever it is, you expect some multiple of that in cash flow while the asset is... How long do you typically hold your assets for in general? Yeah. Well, it depends on which asset class, but typically what we show our investors is a five-year pro forma. So we're looking to complete our business plan on any one asset in five years. Unless there's a special case, we might show them a seven-year pro forma. You know, we are actually looking, even though we show five years, we're looking to wrap up our projects ideally in three, but we give ourselves a couple extra years in there just as a buffer room. Because again, like if you hit a market cycle like this, you could sell an asset a year ago. You can't sell it right now for the price that you wanted. So you just yeah. need to be able to not be pressured to have to sell in a down market. Okay. And since you brought up the market, I certainly don't want to put you on the spot. You know, I'm not asking you to make any predictions. Maybe if you could just share some, you know, it's January, it's the beginning of January here as we record this. Maybe what are some of your thoughts in terms of the real estate market? Like, what do you feel like? What are you seeing? What should people be concerned about or not concerned about? Because again, you turn the TV on, you know, the world is ending. First of all, turn off your TV. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> I'm serious about that. Turn off your TV, remove the news feed from your news or from your phone. Get off all of those websites. Don't have them hit your inbox. And um, one, that'll just destroy your happiness. It'll create anxiety. Two, go back to those seven principles that I named. Because if you're investing for all those seven principles, okay, you take those seven principles and you're investing with high quality operators, even if you're the operator, you're going to be making money in any business cycle. If your cash flow goes down, but you're in a nice equity position on your asset, you'll make your money there. If you're getting nice, large tax benefits, you'll make money there. If you've locked in good debt that somebody else is paying down for you, you're making money there. That's why I really hedge on these pillars. 
I think for today's market, it is real. That's why you have to really take a look at those assets and probably say no to most of the things that are crossing your desk. Now, as far as like future looking, and let me just back it up just a second. If you find a good deal, even if the interest, the debt on it is seven, eight percent. If it is a high quality deal and it's going to make money now, lock it in. Again, you can always refinance later. Right. A later point in time. But if it works with that debt today, amazing, because there's going to be a cycle where the interest rates fall again. I can't predict when that'll happen, but then you'll be able to renegotiate your debt. And guess what? Pull money out cash tax-free, but pull out cash. As far as future looking, let me just take the multifamily class. Pipelines have really slowed down right now. We've had to wait for seller expectations to align with what's really going on in the market. But a lot of people got themselves in 2020 and early 2021, they started using bridge debt to buy properties. Now, why did they do that? Because they wanted to amplify cash flow as these asset prices raised. Those bridge debts probably only had a three-year lockout on them. That's going to start adjusting probably towards the end of 2023 into 2024. Not everybody's going to be able to renegotiate that debt, which is going to create a lot of buying opportunities for people. We are anticipating that capital markets stabilize and even come down a little bit before then. We don't really predict that we're going to see a lot of carnage there, but there are going to be operators that are going to be very pressured to sell their assets. Maybe they didn't purchase an interest rate lock on the asset. Maybe they didn't purchase any extensions or they they didn't negotiate any extensions. So their backs are going to be really up against the wall. You know, you want to be with a smart operator that knows how to utilize that debt really well. Yeah. Your rule number five, smart leverage. So, and I, yeah, I think that a lot of us, because it went on for so long, Whitney, where you just thought that interest rates were going to be below 4% forever. Yeah. I just saw a graph yesterday and I wanted to say it was from Green Street. Don't quote me on that, but you know, maybe Marcus Millichap and interest rates, they were supposed to glide up to 4% by the end of the year, 4.1 to 4.5%. That was the glide that was supposed to happen by the end of 2022. And then where we landed, nowhere near that. Well above that, almost double. So it kind of harkens back to the 1970s. I can understand. I mean, there are still many investors that lived through that time right? Like for me, like the dot-com crash and then also the financial crisis is like kind of my life crises that I've lived through. It kind of goes back to the psychology of money. If you've ever read that book by Morgan Housel, you know, some of these traumas can get ingrained. I understand why people are triggered, but again, you kind of have to take a big breath and go back to investing principles. Like how have people made money in nearly every single market is because They invested based on principle and sound fundamentals and not trying to find an adrenaline rush, an identity even with their real estate investing. That's so great. The adrenaline rush part. I mean, heck, I've been guilty of that. I can tell you that. I mean, it's hard not to, right? Super awesome. Tell us real quick about your podcast. You have a podcast. Let's talk about that as well. And where can we find that? Yeah, definitely. It's called the Passive Investing Made Simple Show. And you can find it on YouTube under the PassiveInvesting.com YouTube page. And you can also find it on your favorite pod player of choice. And there we just talk about all things passive investing. So you can go into your first or next deal with confidence. Awesome. A lot of our listeners are going to be super interested in that because again, we're working busy W-2s and we're trying to make money in other ways. So go check out Whitney's show, please. Other than the seven pillars, Whitney, 
obviously you've created some habits that have made you successful over the years. Could you highlight for us maybe one or two that maybe you weren't doing before you got into investing that have really been a game changer for you that you still utilize today? Yeah, definitely. So I'll give a book and then I'll extrapolate what I got from that book. And it's The One Thing by Gary Keller and Jay Papasan. You know, very underrated book, I think. And you have to read it multiple times. If you only read it once, I would challenge yourself, read it one time a year because every single year you're going to pull out something additional from it. You'll be like, oh, holy smokes, I am not doing that. But one of the habits that came out of that you know, for number one, I learned how to organize my time based on priority and really kind of reevaluate how I wanted my schedule to look. And then on the surface, that's what a lot of people get. You know, they had a, like a quick two-page question and answers that couples could do. And couple can mean business partners, it can be married couple, or you can even answer these for yourself. But kind of a life design type of question and answer sheet, and it tackles multiple areas of life. Now, my husband and I started doing that on an annual basis. And the first year was like, we were like, whoa, I'm the goal setter. He's not. He was like, can we go do something else now? Like, this is like pulling teeth. Um, But now we look forward to it every year because one, we've reduced a lot of the friction out of it because a lot of these questions we've kind of already grappled with over Mm -hmm. time. But it's really about planning your life and not letting your life plan you, which is how so many of us live. Even if you're in a W-2 job, plan your life. I really encourage people to go check out that book and do a goal-setting retreat once or twice a year with themselves or with their significant others and really focus on how do you want your life to look? Yeah. It's amazing how many people don't do that. I preached to my friends about it and one started this year. I was like, yay. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Well, if you just think about it all the time. You probably agree with this. A lot of us are doing stuff that doesn't matter, right? We waste our time doing stuff that doesn't matter. It doesn't pay us a return. But when it comes to our life, as you said, plan the vision for your life, we won't spend the time. I don't know how long your retreat is, whether it's a half a day or a full day. That to me is worth time spent, especially if then you start aligning your daily principles and activities with that future vision. I assume that's what you would recommend to the listeners as well. Absolutely. Like flip-flopping your time. Like if you feel like you're all constantly stressed and behind the eight ball, you know, look at all those ways that your own worst enemy and purchase those and get those out. Now, here's the thing. We're so ingrained. I don't think people really realize how much of a product of the system they are, part of the algorithm. Like I don't have social media on my phone at all. Like I don't look at it. I don't check news. Don't get me wrong. The news will find me. (laughs) It's hard to escape it. But I have hours back in my life because of those habits. Now it's hard, right? Like it's physically like this is going hearkening back to like my degrees. Like my degrees are in public health and nutrition. I mean, our environment is programmed to hit our dopamine switch every single day as many times as possible. Like every app that you have on your phone is meant to grab your attention and keep it on it as much as possible. So learn how to take back your time and your attention. And those are non-renewable resources. We said at the beginning, once you spent them, they're gone. Like it will be hard to break because you're literally breaking at the same switch that a drug stimulates, like opioids hit a dopamine receptor. Every time your phone dings or you see a red button, you know, it hits that dopamine receptor. But if you can break that and spend it doing something you love, spend it with your family, like 
you'll be glad you did it. But it's hard. It's an addiction. We have to break it. Very challenging indeed. I have kudos to you for taking it off your phone. That's awesome. Whitney, this has been really tremendous. You've shared such great stories. I love the stories. I love the insight. And the seven pillars are awesome. Anything that I didn't ask you that you maybe wanted to share as we wrap up? Any final thoughts before we end today? We can go on forever because I just love talking about real estate and helping people kind of find their path in the world here because it's different for everybody. The parting comment I would leave people with is ready, fire, aim. Like if you're ready to break the W 2 prison, take action, any action. Ideally, if you have a plan in place and you can execute on that plan, amazing. But you've got to start taking steps forward and testing because every step forward you take is an experiment to see if it works or it doesn't. And if you never take a step forward, you don't get that feedback to understand if you're going in the right direction. Awesome. Love it. Perfect way to end it. Ready, fire, aim. Awesome. Whitney, thanks so much for sharing your valuable time today. I hope everyone has a super awesome day. Thank you for tuning in to another episode of the W2 Prison Break Show. Don't forget, you can watch all full episodes on our YouTube channel. Definitely check that out and please subscribe. Go to www.w2prisonbreak.com to learn more. If you like this show, please leave us a rating and review so we can continue to support you and the thousands of others planning their W-2 prison break. Here's to busting you out.